The following study is a Sunday morning lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. Wednesday night, we're starting a new book. Actually, right now, we're starting a brand new book, Hide the Kids, Song of Solomon. Here we go. Why don't you turn there with me? Song of Solomon. Do you know what day it is today? It's 0202-2020. That's interesting. The rapture of the church. It's going to happen. No, no, no. I'm not predicting a day or an hour. Just kidding. Nope. Today is Groundhog's Day. And it's the Super Bowl. (laughs) Some of you are like, yeah, just say it, Super Bowl. Um, Others are like, oh, it was? Who's playing this year? Uh, It's funny the different uh, perspectives. But um, one of the things, some people watch the Super Bowls just for the commercials. In my opinion, the last few years, they've been found lacking. But um, as we start up Song of Solomon, I'm reminded of a Super Bowl commercial that was funny years ago. Um, and it was kind of uh, one of those awkward funnies. You know, th- there was this guy in a stadium, football stadium, and he's sitting next to his girlfriend, and she's there eating her Butterfinger or whatever it was. I think it was a Butterfinger. And she's really into her Butterfinger, and he's, he's like all kind of giddy, and you're like, what's going on? Well, then it shows up on the big screen. His picture and her picture, will you marry me, it says on the big screen. And, and she's just there eating her Butterfinger, you know, and he's like elbowing her, you know, like, hey, look, honey, look, look, you know. And she's just, she's like, leave me alone, you know. She's, she's eating her butter, Butterfinger. And, and, okay, now this sounds horrible, but this is part of the commercial. You notice that she's kind of this pretty girl, but she's got this kind of larger nose, you know. And, um, and, she, and, and she's just there eating, and, and she, she kind of looks at him, and she, look at the screen. But by the time she looks up, she looks up, and it switches from the proposal to uh, rhinoplasty surgery advertisement. <laughs> <laughs> and she hits him and storms out of the stadium. Uh, um, but uh, I think it was a Butterfinger commercial, if I'm not mistaken. The reason I tell you that story is because the romance in the Song of Solomon, well, it's, it's, it's kind of like that. In fact, there's such turn-on uh, erotic phrases in the Song of Solomon like this. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon that looks toward Damascus. Man, you guys want to be romantic, you can just, you know, steal some of these phrases from Song of Solomon. I like this one. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. <laughs> Thy belly is like a heap of wheat set about lilies. Romance, man. That's what Song of Solomon. Well, it's interesting because some would call this, in fact, when I was in college, I went to a secular college, and um, this one particular literature class I took, the, the prof loved taking jabs at the Bible. And, uh, and like to make fun of the Bible. It's, it's all about, it's not education anymore. It's indoctrination. And it's been that way for a long time. But uh, this prof was trying to indoctrinate us how stupid the Bible is. And he said, consider the Song of Solomon. You know, what's this erotic oriental love song in the middle of the Bible? What's that all about? And then he quoted some of the, you know, uh, the things of, of, of the Song of Solomon, sort of mocking, laughing, Which is really kind of interesting because, uh, you know, a good literature professor would actually realize that it's a 3,000-year-old love song. I'm sure it's going to sound a little different than what we say today. 
Um, we talk very differently today, and it's a whole other language, and it sounds different, and it is different, and what was important was different. You know, today we talk in terms that they would look, they would think, what are they talking about? Um, but in Bible times, this is the kind of love language that they would use, and it is kind of an amazing love song, a romantic uh, poem from the king to his bride. And, and it is erotic. In fact, so erotic that the Jewish, uh, you know, Orthodox Jews wouldn't let men read this book until they were 30 years old. Uh, it's rated PG-30, according to the <laughs> Orthodox uh, Jews. Um, and, and so you've got this interesting story, and it's basically sort of a, a dialogue of the king speaking to his bride, and his bride replying back and forth, and then once in a while, a group of women, uh, friends, chime in sort of in a sort of a chorus of, of um, you know, agreement or statements. And so it's this, it's this uh, really beautiful book. And while, you know, my professor dismissed it as some ridiculous erotic love song in the middle of the Bible, um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he called it the Holy of Holies of Scripture. Wonder, wonder why Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that British preacher called the Prince of Preachers back in the 1800s, he was a great orator, great preacher of the word, but he said it's, it was the Holy of Holies. Why would he call the, 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 this, this, this poem, this love song that's quite erotic, um, why, why would he call that the Holy of Holies? The answer? Well, it's not, that's the problem. My, my goofy college professor didn't understand the Bible is not just one-dimensional, but it's multi-layered, and it's got many different perspectives and meanings. And one of the perspectives, I mean, there's so much we can talk about, and we will as we go through this book on Wednesday night, we'll see that it's a practical handbook on marriage. You know, there's, there's the way that a husband's supposed to love his wife and the wife loving her husband. And there's some great lessons given to us in this love song. But the next tier or the next level is this beautiful allegory of how God loves us. Brad, are you kidding? An erotic story talking about body parts and stuff? Women, her nose is like the Tower of Lebanon from looking at Damascus? Like, what does that have to do with me? And the, well, here's, here's the deal. One of the things you have to go into this book understanding is the Lord uses marriage, a husband and a wife, and, and here's the problem. We've destroyed the, the view of what marriage looks like. We don't even know what a good marriage looks like anymore, it seems to me. You know, we get married, and if you're even willing to get married today, most people have just shined that all together. In Sweden, no one gets married anymore. It's just live together until you get tired of a person. It's more like a contractual agreement to have a child. Um, and, and marriage has been out the window, and, 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 and we have prenups and all these weird divorce stuff that we do, and, and, you know, and so we've kind of ruined the picture. But, but originally, God intended the, the marriage relationship to be a beautiful illustration of our relationship with him. You and I, the church, anybody who's saved or a Christian, we are called the bride of Christ, and he's called the bridegroom. You know, it's like in Ephesians 5, 25, where it talks about how, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Jesus' love for you is, is such a beautiful love. And, and, and how does he make us understand that love that he has? He says, I'll show you. I'm going to invent and I'm going to create marriage. 
And even though our culture and our Supreme Court and everybody's redefined what marriage is, totally contrary to what God says it is, that, that's the big deal. God invented it. He, he defined it in the word very clear. And, and, then, and then we've kind of said, oh, well, we don't agree with God. We're going to make marriage look like what we want. And we've destroyed the picture. We've ruined the picture of what God's trying to show us in the marriage relationship. So you almost have to try to, in your mind, picture the perfect couple. Uh, you know, as described by God in Genesis when he created the man and the woman. What happened there in the Garden of Eden? Well, it says there that of all the things God created, he said it is good. Of the sky, it is good. Of the stars and the planets and outer space, it is good. The firmament, it is good. The trees of the field, they're good. The animals, he said, Mr. Hippopotamus, that's good. And giraffe, that's good. But then he looked at the man and said, it is not good. That's what he said. He said, it is not good that man should dwell alone. Don't you wonder if Adam was like, what's the deal here, Lord? I've been naming these animals, Mr. and Mrs. Hippo, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, but where's my missus? And Adam was alone. God says, that's not good. And when God created man, what did he say? He said, let us create man in our image. Why the plural there? Our, us. Who's the we here? Well, I believe that's the Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit was all there uh, in one being in three persons, the mystery of the Trinity, creating man in that image. But when man was created, Adam, he was not all there. This should answer a lot for you gals. When you're looking at your husband, man, he doesn't seem to be all there. He's not. The, The completion of humanity was when God created woman. The man and the woman being joined together, the two shall become one flesh, and that's the image of God. Brother, are you saying God has female characteristic? Yes. Um, don't be stupid, though, on this one. Um, there, there's a lot of people that sit around and say, well, God must be a woman then. No. Um, I'm just going to say this, and I know some of you are going to be offended by it, but God is not a woman. The Bible says he's a man. He's called the Father in heaven. And I wouldn't tell God when he says, I'm a man, and you walk up to God, I think you're a woman. I wouldn't do that. Um, I wouldn't do that to me if I were you. <laughs> if you walked to bread, I think you're a woman. Hey, I know I have a feminine side. Uh, not really. Uh, I probably should work on that a little bit. But, <laughs> but see, God, in his perfection, he's got all the greatest characteristics of the man, but he also possesses all the greatest characteristics of the woman. And I think when you see God in his perfection, the best way to view that in our little realm is to see a beautiful, perfect husband and a wife in a perfect marriage. That, now you're starting to see who God really is. You got the, the strength and the power and the logic, but you've also got the compassion and the sensitivity and the creativity and, and all those elements of the man and the woman all blended together. That, that's who God is, I believe. But he's still called God, God the Father. Don't, don't be duped by these people that are trying to say that, that you know, Uh, God has his own pronoun or whatever. That's just ridiculous. Go with what the Bible says. That's always a win. But the reason I say this is because when people dismiss the Song of Solomon as just an erotic love tale from the Orient, they're totally missing the main theme. The main theme is how God loves us, his bride, and we'll have much to learn about that. And I'm going to just give you sort of a taste of that this morning um, as we look at these just few verses from our upcoming Wednesday night study. Would you go with me to Song of Solomon, chapter 4, 
for our study uh, this morning. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Now, we will learn more about this, of who this woman is, and, and the king is none other than Solomon himself. And the, the king, the man in the story, he's going to sort of speak his love and affection to her. But he breaks off into a specific theme um, of his love, and the theme is that of a garden. And uh, the garden is of, of uh, you know, fruit, but also vegetables, but also spices and herbs and fragrances and flowers. It's like this beautiful, complete garden. And he's going to sort of liken his, his bride to this beautiful garden. And that's what we're going to take a look at. Now, one of the things, by the way, I've got to say, sort of a, a bit of a challenge with the book of this Song of Solomon, um, is who's speaking at what time is a bit challenging. Now, some of you might say, Brett, I, I have an advantage. My Bible, uh, my translation puts the who's speaking at any given time, and it delineates that. Does, does any of your Bibles have that? Yeah, some of you guys? Yeah. The reason that that's not good is because every translation writes them down differently. If you compare who, who they think is speaking at any given time, um, all the translations disagree. And it gets very confusing. Who's talking? At what time? Um, I'll show you on Wednesday night how uh, you can accurately see who's talking in this love poem at any given time. There, I think there are some tricks um, theologically that, uh, and, and contextually that will help you uh, understand who's speaking. And I'll show you how that works out a little bit in our text this morning. But we're going to start with the king speaking of his beautiful uh, you know, bride as a garden. And by the way, this is the revenge uh, for, you know, those that are more romantic and less NFL Super Bowl. Uh, this is a good sermon for Super Bowl Sunday. We're talking about love and a garden and flowers and petunias and stuff like that. Uh, so, so some of you are going to, this is great for some of you. You're like, yeah, this is a good Super Bowl Sunday uh, sermon. Uh, so check this out. He starts out in verse 12. It's Song of Solomon 4.12. He says, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, campfire with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. He's describing from 3,000 years ago a beautiful garden, and he says, you're like this beautiful garden. Trying to be romantic on our honeymoon, I took Debbie. I was a broke youth pastor, but I took Deb with my Volkswagen uh, on a romantic honeymoon up to Victoria, B.C., got on the, you know, the ferry there and crossed over. And um, I, I didn't know much about, you know, how to plan a trip like that. I'd been planning, you know, uh, crazy trips with youth ministry and stuff, but I, I didn't really, I wasn't great at romance, uh, knowing how to, you know, do things that she would want to do. So I figured, hey, we'll, we'll go to the Bouchard Gardens. That's a girl thing to do. Uh, if you've been to the Bouchard Gardens, it's perhaps one of the most beautiful gardens in the world. It's, a, it's an amazing garden. 
But me being the, you know, 21-year-old knucklehead, I I scheduled a whopping one hour for us (laughs) to go through the Bouchard Gardens. Uh, If you've been there, you know it takes at least a day, really, to walk through the whole garden. Um, So we got there, and I'm like, honey, we got an hour before we have to catch the ferry to get out to our next uh, activity. Uh, And so literally, we were running through Bouchard. Oh, look at the flower. Whoa. Uh, uh, Wow, look at that. It it, it wasn't really uh, as as, uh, wonderful. Now, now, thankfully, years later, we did a revisit trip, and I planned a day, and we strolled like an older couple uh, going through the, (laughs) the garden. We saw a few young punk kids going through running like we did the first time. Uh, but but it, it's almost like this bridegroom is, is just stopping to smell the flowers and to enjoy and to appreciate this woman as the garden, the one that's, that's a blessing and has a fragrance and fruit and blessing. Um, let's take a look at this. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up and a fountain sealed. The idea is that this is a protected garden. Um, and uh, it's a, a safe garden. There's something that's, that's um, protected, safe, and enclosed. And when you're enclosed, but you've got springs of water, man, that's going to be a great, great garden because it's never going to run out of water. But he's going to mention the water here again in a minute. But he starts off saying a garden enclosed or barred. Uh, it's really for him. And that's one of the things that um, we lose in our culture is this idea of, you know, monogamy. The, uh, the one and only. Um, in our culture, we live in a culture where uh, people stomp through their gardens long before they're married and enjoy the fruit of the garden without even being married. And we've lost the idea of saving yourself for your one and only. And this is kind of the idea here. This garden is the king's. And this, this bride has kept herself uh, for him. Um, and that's a biblical theme. Uh, you know, the world laughs at that, and, and young people scoff and, and all that. Meanwhile, there's sexually transmitted diseases going rampant around the world. Doctors are at a loss knowing what to do with some of these newer strains of STDs and STIs, as they call them. They ch- always change in names. But, um, but all that to say, you know, the biblical model is to save yourself, have one person that you're married to, and that, that garden, well, it, it's enclosed. It's barred. It's one to be enjoyed only by the husband and the wife. Um, but that's the idea here. But it's a spring shut up and a fountain that's sealed. And then he talks about all the fruits and the, the spices, you know, pomegranates, campfire, spikenard, you know, frankincense, myrrh, aloes, all the chief spices are mentioned here. Um, and, and then in verse 15, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. I love that. Living waters, streams from Lebanon. Um, the streams from Lebanon in Jerusalem, well, those were the, the headwaters of the Jordan River. How many of you have been to Israel with me? Raise your hand. Um, well, good. That's good. Uh, I'll tell you, you guys have been with me to these headwaters of the Jordan River. Uh, when we went to two places, we saw two of the three. We went to the, uh, the, the Caesarea Philippi, also called Banyas, where they worshiped Ban or Pan, um, not Peter, a uh, different kind of pan. Uh, but it was this, the headwaters there and the water bubbles out from the ground. And then we also went to Tel Dan. It's this ancient ruin that's amazing uh, where Ahab and Jezebel, Jezebel of the Bible lived. And all the ruins where they lived are right there. And, but the water flows through the ancient city. It's this amazing headwater of the Jordan. The third one is up in Lebanon. 
And that's the, the northernmost uh, headwaters of the Jordan River that come out of the ground. And this is what Solomon's referring to as the Jordan River, the headwaters of this living water that comes through the garden is what he's talking about. So if you've been to Israel, you know what this is like. It's, it's like, you know, the Middle East is pretty much desert. And most of it's dry and barren. In fact, there's places even in Israel where you can't find a twig or a blade of grass for miles. It's just dry, barren desert. But wherever the Jordan River meanders through the Jordan Valley, man, you see lush, green vegetation and farms and palm trees and and bananas and all kinds of beautiful fruit. And and the fruit and the vegetables of Israel are prolific and tasty and amazing, um, all because of the Jordan River. By the way, uh, this is off topic, but the Jordan is, is getting lower and the Sea of Galilee was getting too, too, too uh, tapped for all the farming and all the water needs of Israel. But the Israelis are genius. You know, they, they've, they figured out uh, how to, you know, desalinize the ocean. And uh, now like 75% of their water supply comes from the salt ocean. And they just put it through their desalinization plants and they have fresh water. Like it's an amazing thing that they've done. And now the, the Jordan's filling back up and the Sea of Galilee is getting full again. And it's, it's just kind of an amazing thing. But, but that's a that's separate deal. All that to say, that's what Solomon's talking about. The living water. Now, you Bible students know that water is a type of several things, but living water is specifically a type of what? Right. The Holy Spirit. Some, some of you say the word because the word is like likened to water and they're not mutually exclusive. You know, the word of God is living and powerful uh, and it's, it's the Holy Spirit who teaches us in the word. So there's links there, but living water refers to the Holy Spirit. And, um, and one of the things that uh, I love about this picture is this garden is sort of fruitful because of the living water that flows through it. And that's the picture of you and I, the bride of Christ. How is our life fruitful? Well, Galatians reminds us that there's something that causes you to have fruit. And that's called the fruit of the Spirit. And see, that's the kind of fruit that our bridegroom, Jesus, wants from his church, that we have good fruit. And, um, and all, that, all that to say here, this, this bride, she's beautiful because she has the living water flowing through her. Um, now, we see that here, but I want to show you stuff about, uh, about this little section of, uh, we'll, we'll read on here in a minute, but in verses 12 through 15, I want to show you, number one, if you're jotting down notes, you can maybe scribble this down, or if you have a steel trap mind, you can memorize these things, but number one, love unconditionally. We see love demonstrated, unconditional love. Because right now, we hear this bridegroom saying, oh, you're a garden enclosed and, and it, he only compliments. He only speaks goodness. Um, I love that the king likens his bride to a garden. He doesn't liken her to, well, what would you guys liken your wife to? What would you say? And, and, and what have you said maybe is the more appropriate question. Honey, you are a... And, 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 and sometimes I've noticed that we as married couples like to pick apart each other, find each other's faults. We sniff out the sin and we, we remind each other, You're, you do this and you do that. And, and, and we, don't, we don't compliment the good, we point out the bad. 
I love how in this Song of Solomon, man, this bridegroom is only complimenting, only using beautiful imagery. You're a garden, not a dump, not a parking lot, not a field of weeds. Now, what's interesting is the bride in this story, she knows that she's flawed. She actually acknowledges some of her flaws uh, in this book. Um, call them flaws or not. Um, but it seems that the king never notices the flaw. He only notices the good. Hey, is that true with our bridegroom, Jesus? Man, I love that Jesus loves us like this king in this story. How does he love us? Unconditionally, sacrificially. Um, some of you struggle with this. How can God love me? I'm such a sinner. The answer, when you accepted Christ and believed that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and then rose from the grave, you are accepting that Jesus died for your sins, robing you in righteousness. And he takes your sin and puts it as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers your sin no more. So that when our bridegroom looks at us, he looks at us like this bridegroom looks at her, with perfection. He doesn't say, yeah, you know, you're beautiful and everything, but you kind of got B.O. See, that's what some of you do with the Lord. Oh, Lord, I'm such a sinner. How can you love me? But the Lord is saying, man, I've washed you in my blood. I've robed you in my righteousness. I died on the cross for your sins, and I've moved your sins away from you. And so the Lord, positionally, in Christ Jesus, declares you righteous. And he remembers your sins no more. Man, don't you wish in marriage you could do that? In, in literal marriage here and now, like you could say, honey, I remember your sins no more. Ding! Wouldn't that be great to be able to forget stuff? That's one of the things we can't do. One of the greatest attributes of God, in my opinion, is his ability to choose to forget, and he really does. But you and I, we are plagued with remembering, well, you did this, and you did that, and you're a flawed in this way, and you've you know, wronged me in the other way. But in this story, this beautiful allegory of how Christ loves his church, how the king loves his, he says, you're a beautiful garden. Um, flip back to chapter one real quick. Let me show you kind of example. The bride, she's speaking, the girl, in, uh, in verse five. Now, what you have to understand is she um, uh, is going to say something that might sound uh, racist, and people like to try to twist things in here, but she's talking about herself, and she's talking about having her skin suntanned. Oh, cool. Did she go to Tan Republic? No. In Bible times, having a suntan in Bible times, especially in royalty and what have you, you wanted to have your skin not be kissed by the sun. We pay money to get our skin nuked here in our culture. Uh, we like that, and that's great. But in Bible times, you wanted your skin as, as light as it could be because otherwise you were kind of considered, it was sort of a, a thing you're out working in the field, which means you're kind of a servant. And that was something you didn't want to be perceived as. And, and it wasn't considered attractive uh, to get a suntan, to go out on the beach and soak up the rays. That wasn't considered attractive. And that's what this woman's going to talk about. Check this out. In verse 5, it's Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 5. She says, I am black, but comely, which is beautiful. So she knows that she is a pretty girl, but she says, but I'm black. She says, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon, look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. 
she's talking about stuff here that she feels flawed. Her vineyard's not kept and her skin is tan (laughs) because she's been out in the sun. Again, culturally, we have no idea what in the world she's talking about. So you have to kind of go back 3,000 years and realize what they saw as, as valuable and beautiful and all that. She's sort of apologetically saying, yeah, I'm not really all the girl that you want me to be, but what you're going to find is this king loves her just as she is. She's making apologies for who she is, but he's saying, nope, I love you exactly the way you are. And your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. Uh, he loves that nose, that huge, beautiful nose. He loves it. That's the thing. You might say, but Lord, spiritually, I have a huge nose and my, uh, you know, I'm, my vineyard's unkept. And, and yet the Lord would say, but I love you. That's the thing about the Lord's love is it's unconditional. Whether you're good or bad, worthy or undeserving, none of that matters. The Lord, if he's chosen you, if you've been saved, if you've accepted Christ, he's chosen you as his bride and he thinks you're beautiful and his thoughts towards you are precious thoughts, thoughts of peace, not of evil, Jeremiah tells us. Um, So this is what this bride is hearing. Only good, only compliments. You're a beautiful garden and there's nothing about it that's bad. That's what he's saying. So not only is this a, you know, a beautiful analogy of Christ's love for us, but it's also a paradigm for you and me and, and those of us that are married, how we're to treat our husband and a wife. You're to forget the wrongs. You're to forgive the things that have been done against you. Um, and, and this is a huge but hard lesson. One of the things I love about this is the bridegroom never is seen wanting to change the bride. Now, I have to confess, I'm not an expert on a lot of things, but I'm going to say I'm somewhat of an expert on weddings, having done over a thousand weddings, having done, you know, the same number of premarital counseling sessions largely. Um, And I've learned a lot, but one of the things I've learned in all the years of marriage counseling and being married for, you know, 30 plus years, I got to say, I've never once seen a husband change his wife. And I've never once seen a wife change her husband. I've seen the Lord change the heart of a wife and the Lord change the heart of a husband. I've seen a husband change himself and fix things. I've seen a wife change herself, but I've never seen it where it works out where the wife's saying, honey, you need to start doing this and you need to stop doing that. Never works. It's really a faulty way of thinking that I'm gonna change my you know, spouse. And I find it interesting that nowhere in this love letter is to say, I love you, but man, you do need a little, little help with that, that problem of your vineyard. You're, you're a little out of whack there on your, your, your suntan. You don't hear that from the king. He just loves her unconditionally. And that's the end of that story. Uh, one of the beautiful things about marriage is we're supposed to love each other that way. Love, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he loves us unconditionally. He doesn't point out our flaws and he doesn't remember our sins. And he's not always chiding against us for our sins, but he loves us because he forgives us of our sins. You know what's amazing about the Lord's forgiveness? He forgives you before you were even sorry. My husband's not even sorry. He's in the middle of sins. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, right in the middle of our sin, he still died for us. That's how much he loved us. And after he did that, it's like there at the cross. Remember as they were crucifying Jesus, nailing him with nails, whipping him with cords of a flagellum, 
crown of thorns, beating him in the face, hanging on a cross. And what does he do? He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was forgiving them and they weren't even sorry. They, they hadn't even begun to be repentant. And yet the Lord still forgave them, loved them. That's our bridegroom. Aren't you glad we have such a bridegroom as a church? Man, and so it's a beautiful model of Christ, but it's also a paradigm for marriage of what we're supposed to do. Unconditional love. We see love here unconditionally. Not I love you, but you need to lose a few pounds. I love you, but I think I don't like your tone. None of that. You just see, I love you, period. So, so that's the key. Jesus loves you specifically, individually, and we need to see that we're loved by Christ. Love unconditionally. That's number one. Number two, we learn from this love unconditionally, but we also see the winds of adversity. The winds of adversity? Yeah, check it out. Verse 16, the first part particularly. Um, it says in verse 16, Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. There in chapter 4, verse 16 of Song of Solomon, it says, Awake, O north wind, and come uh, and thou south, blow upon my garden. Now, there's something that happened here that you may not know that happened. There was a switch in the person who was talking. The king mentions how beautiful the garden is, verses 12 through 15, and now we have the woman, the bride, responding. And what is she saying? She's saying, oh, come on, you know, north wind. Come on, south. You see, the south wind is when things get hot. The north wind is when things get cold. And she says, bring it on, the hot and the cold. The winds of adversity. Adversity is what she's actually praying about here. This is interesting. Why would she want wind to come? Is wind a good thing for the garden? Well, she seems to think so. She's saying, come on, cold wind, hot wind, it doesn't matter, either one, because it'll make the spices flow out. Boy, there's something about that. Isn't it true that when you go through times of the winds of adversity, that that's where sometimes you see the fragrance of a person, whether it stinks or whether it's beautiful? Um, it's like, uh, you know, uh, Christians are like tea bags. You know, you'll never know what flavor they are until they're in hot water. Um, and some of you, when you get through difficult times, man, that's where this fragrance comes out. I've seen that in, in this fellowship. People that are going through difficult times and how they just trust the Lord and they um, have a quiet confidence and they know that God is good and you just kind of, it smells good. Others, the drive through of Taco Bell is taking more than five minutes and they're all perturbed and upset. You know, I didn't go, I'm not going to Ruth Chris. I'm just trying to get a burrito. <laughs> you're all upset and angry. And that, you're like, that kind of stinks. Whew. You see, it's interesting. You know, it's when the wind blows, you smell the fragrance. And, and that's the thing. The winds of adversity here, she's saying, bring them on. Um, and and let's, let's let that fragrance flow, she's saying, from my garden. And man, we can talk about how in the Bible, all through the Bible, it talks about adversity being a good thing. You know, Paul the Apostle said, I rejoice in tribulation, Romans chapter 5. Why? Because tribulation brings hope, patience, and experience. He understood that adversity and trying difficult times, man, 
he knew that that sometimes the Lord uses that to make the fragrance flow. Good things start to happen. He said, our light affliction is but for a moment, but worketh a far greater exceeding weight in eternal weight and glory. You know, in heaven, it's going to come out. The, the, the adversity we're going through now, somehow it's going to pay off in heaven. And so he says, bring it on. And that's really what this woman is praying. She's saying, oh, let the winds blow north or south, hot or cold, but let them blow that my fragrance might flow out. And I think that's an important thing, that, that, that people might, you know, smell the Jesus in us when we're going, you know, through difficulties and trials. How do you smell when you go through trouble? She's praying, bring it on, the winds of adversity. So we have love unconditionally, the winds of adversity, and then number three, we see food for his majesty. Huh? Yeah, at the last part, did you see what she says? In the last part of verse 16, let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Um, You know, this is the key to life. What she's saying is the key to life. I really believe that. How could that be eating the fruit of a garden? Um, Well, here's why. She's talking about her, her king, her bridegroom, her husband, let him eat of the fruit of her garden, like, like th- that her life would be pleasing to him and that he would feel satisfied and pleasure from her. That's what she's asking, really, in a sort of poetic way. And isn't it interesting that that's the perfect picture of what you and I exist for? You and I exist, the Bible tells us, for really one reason. And unless you know this, your life, you're not going to be satisfied you're not going to find contentment until you know what Revelation 4.11 reminds us of, that you were created for his pleasure and for his pleasure. That's why you were created. That's it. You and I exist not to please ourselves, not to build a bigger fancy house, which that's okay if you do that, but if you're doing that for pleasure, you're going to miss. Or to drive a nice car, to have an amazing career, to be a grandma or grandpa or mom or dad. Or, those are all great things. But you don't exist to do that. You exist to bring God, our bridegroom, Jesus, pleasure. And that's the secret to life. When you seek to please God, when you seek to please your bridegroom, Jesus Christ, then suddenly you'll start to see how it all makes sense. I was talking to one of our young college student guys uh, the other day, and he was telling me how he was in a class, and they all went around a circle at, at, uh, at, at the university there. And, um, the question was, you know, what, what is the meaning of life for you? And he said there was all kinds of, you know, crazy answers, you know, uh, people saying we exist for procreation just to make more humans. Others said we exist, you know, we shouldn't exist. We should kill ourselves or whatever. <laughs> you know, like crazy answers. But his answer was we, we exist to please God. And the the, 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 the class burst into laughter and the professor made fun of him and all that. But as it turns out, he was the only one who was right. That that's why we exist. We exist for God's pleasure. That's why we were created. When you figure this out, you'll find fulfillment. When you figure out, man, I'm here to please God. And by pleasing God, you'll find fulfillment in life. Here, this bride is saying, oh, that my garden might be satisfying to my bridegroom, to my king. And that's the key. That's the secret. Food for his majesty. By the way, you know, this reminds me of Matthew 21. Remember when Jesus was walking down the street with the disciples? And he came upon a fig tree, and he was hungry. And so Jesus went to take a a fruit off that fig tree, but the fig tree was barren. And so what did Jesus do? 
He cursed the fig tree, and the fig tree withered up and died. And the thing there in Matthew 21, the idea is the tree that does not please Jesus has no value to anyone else either. Nobody's going to get fruit. If Jesus doesn't get fruit from that tree, no one's, well, but that doesn't sound very nice. Yeah, but he's Jesus. He's the creator of all things, and all things were created by him and for him. And if something's not useful to him, no, it won't be useful to anyone. And that's the problem. People try to do stuff for their own glory, their own pleasure. But if it's not pleasing to God, they're wasting their time. They don't realize it. And they keep hoping to find that satisfaction. And it's like I was talking about last week. You know, they try to reach the top. The problem is when they get to the top, they find there's nothing there. And it's the person who actually figures this out, that we exist to please him. And really, that's what this woman understands, that she's there to please her husband. Now, we'll see, by the way, that this husband also wants to please his wife. Uh, It's not just a one-sided deal. And one of the things that God does is he gives us all things richly to enjoy, and he blesses us with heavenly blessings and gifts beyond compare. So it's not just a one-sided deal. And again, that's a key to marriage just wanting to please the person you're married to and bless them. It's a great uh, picture for us here as we study this book, Food for His Majesty. By the way, you know, um, sometimes we forget and we we get a little myopic about our lives and what we're doing and our purpose and all that, but our purpose is to please Him. I'm reminded of a story of a, of a beautiful mansion with its own garden and garden house. And, you know, there were the, the gardeners that were there tending this fancy house. And the master of the house, he would stroll through the garden, you know, and enjoy his own garden there. But there was quite a work crew that he had hired to take care of the garden. But the master gardener took special care in the center of the garden. He had a particular rose bush that was uh, prize winning. And each year he would sort of, you know, you, you know, tend this particular rose bush himself because he would see the beautiful roses that would come from this. And it was sort of his pride and joy. But one year there was a particularly beautiful rose that he had tended. And he's like, I'm going to enter this into the competition. I'm going to enter this rose and show people my beautiful rose bush. And he was working and tending. Well, one morning he came early and he looked at his rose bush and was stunned Somebody had come and snipped off his, what he had hoped to be the prize-winning robe, and he, he was furious. And he went around the garden talking to the, you know, undergardeners, saying, you know, which one of you snipped my rose? Where's the rose that I've been working on? And one of the servants said, hey, listen, it wasn't any of us. We saw early this morning the owner of the house, the master of the house, was strolling through the garden and took fancy to that beautiful rose and snipped it himself and took it into the mansion. And the master gardener suddenly realized it never was his rose. He forgot that he was tending a garden, not for himself, but he was tending the garden for the master. And by the way, this is how I think sometimes we feel when we, quote, lose someone, unquote. What do you mean? Um, Well, like when someone we love dies and they go to heaven and we're like, hey, why God? Because he's the master. And he wanted to snip the rose and take them home to be with him. You had care for that person. You got to know that person for a season, but we forget they're the Lord's. And we forget sometimes that it's not about me. It's amazing how we get so egocentric. 
but to realize you exist for his pleasure. And that's the problem. Food for his majesty, it's not about us, it's about him being pleased by our lives. Lessons from Song of Solomon. Well, one more, then we'll wrap it up. Not only love unconditionally, winds of adversity, food for his majesty, but interestingly, lastly, to be ready for company. What? Well, this married couple, they're going to invite people into the garden. Now, in chapter 5, we'll just do one more verse. In the very first verse of chapter 5, we're back to the king talking, the man. And listen to what he says. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. What's he saying? Well, because this garden is so fruitful and so blessed, this bridegroom, after gathering the beautiful fruit of the marriage, he then is able to go out. And the overflow, the, the, the blessings of the, the garden and the production of the fruit is so prolific that he can go out and invite his friends, come and, and eat and enjoy the fruit of this marriage. Brett, that sounds a little weird. Um, that's because we're a perverted, wacko society that we even think that way. Just saying it. It's true. You got to look at this the way the Lord is meaning it to look here. And that is, let me put it in these terms. If you have a great marriage, the blessing of that marriage is going to overflow to people around you. It's just the way it is. When you live godly and you're loving each other unconditionally, it's amazing how the Lord will use that. I have seen couples who live so much as a couple like the love of Christ that people have come to know the Lord through that marriage. Just by seeing the way marriage looks, people said, I want that. I want what what that is. It's a godly love that I see there and people desire that. I've seen it. It's a beautiful testimony and others get to eat the fruit of a fruitful, blessed marriage. That's what's being pictured here, that others are blessed when, when we are the bride of Christ and our lives are fruitful. The overflow will go from the relationship that we have with the Lord to others. And that overflow will be a blessing and others will eat of that fruit and be blessed by it and be drawn to Jesus themselves. It's such a cool picture here to be ready for company. He invites his friends you know, some people are a little bit hoarding with that fruit of their lives, but people are tramping on my vegetables. They're, they're knocking down my fruit, you know. Um, I, I just want it to be me and the Lord. Get out of my face. I'm reminded of that old hymn. I love this old hymn, but it's kind of funny because um, there's a hymn that picks up on this theme, the garden. You remember the old uh, hymn, I come to the garden alone? Remember that one? You guys, you older folks are like, yeah, we remember that. Younger people are like, huh? Um, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Great old hymn. But the funny thing about that hymn is it only takes the first part of this, the garden where it's just the lonely garden with just the bride and the bridegroom, That's great. But at the end of the story, he invites others in and the fruit is then enjoyed and and the benefit goes far beyond even that marriage relationship, which is kind of cool. 
Um, and so the love that we have should reach out to other people. I love what Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The love that we have for others, others will look from the outside and go, there's something different there. There's something real. There's something powerful there. And that's the way Jesus will be known. I wonder if your garden that the Lord enjoys is so fruitful and so blessed that perhaps others are looking and going, man, I want that. And that's not that far of a jump to be able to say, well, if you want that, you follow Jesus. You accept Christ. Have your sins forgiven and be saved. And then you too will have that fruitful garden. Your sins will be dismissed and forgotten. And you'll start to become fruitful as you're walking with Jesus. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture of not only a loving couple from 3,000 years ago, and not only an example of what, how a husband should love his wife and a wife should love her husband, but it's also this beautiful picture of how God loves you. And I am going to be blessed. I think this book is perhaps the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament, like old Charles Haddon Spurgeon declared. And we'll be covering that as we go through this. So again, it's going to get more uh, uh, steamy here. Uh, I chose a very calm one for this morning. Um, but uh, uh, put on your safety belts. The rest is coming. So may the Lord give us grace. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful uh, for just the beauty of your word, Lord. Just this description is so picturesque and, and, and how we can um, be a fruitful garden, Lord. That's what we want to be for you. We want you to be satisfied and, and be pleased even as we exist and we're created for your pleasure. Forgive us, Lord, where we as, as people just forget that. We live for ourselves, for our own pleasure, for our own entertainment and our own, you know, being valued or being esteemed by others. But Lord, you're the one that matters. That you would be pleased by our lives and pleased by your church. May this church, Athey Creek, be a, a pleasing, fruitful garden for you, Lord. We know that we have flaws and we know that we're sinners and we make mistakes, but we're so thankful that you're the forgiver of sins and that you give us that robe of righteousness and that you look at us as your bride. Thank you for that, Lord. And may the marriages of this fellowship flourish and do well. And I pray that good fruit might come from the marriages and that others might see that beautiful, unconditional, sacrificial love that you've shown to us the Lord it would be seen in our marriages. So bless these, your people. We, we pray blessing on not only here, but in Sherwood, over in Salem. Lord, bless those campuses and, and the congregations there. Lord, may we all just sense your love for us, Lord. Forgive us for dismissing your love or thinking that you don't love us. But I pray that instead, Lord, that you would pour out your love upon your congregation, Lord. May we know it and accept it. In Jesus' name, amen. We encourage you to take advantage of our media ministry by visiting us at atheecreek.com anytime. There we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.